Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. My guest today, Teddy Hose, grew up in the Unification Church. It was run by self-proclaimed Messiah, Sun Myung Moon, and came to be known as the Moonies for that reason. They were in Tarrytown, New York, and while its membership and businesses were run worldwide, Teddy's family lived on church properties near the Moon family estate until he was 13. Then he moved to Seattle and eventually he left the group. Life around the Moon family was a mix of summer camps, banquets, and close bonds in an international community, along with, unfortunately, parental abandonment, paranoia around sex and the outside world, prioritizing loyalty towards the super wealthy who could support the group, and sometimes dealing with violence on the part of members of the Moon family. Teddy now lives in San Francisco as an artist and a writer, and his cult experience and research have become a topic in his stand-up comedy, cartooning, and editorials. Teddy has also spoken on the topic in Vice, The Huffington Post, and A&E's Cults and Extreme Beliefs. Here's part one of my conversation with Teddy. Welcome to the show, Teddy. I'm so happy to have you on the indoctrination show. It's really a pleasure to have you be able to tell your story and introduce the listeners and the watchers on YouTube to you. I know you've been doing a lot of kind of not publicity, but really education and prevention and getting your story out there. Um, Because I think this is not at all about publicity. Uh, It really is about taking your experience and wrapping it up in a way that you can offer it to other people, um, which I think is a really wonderful thing. So introduce yourself if you don't mind to the people listening or watching. What are you up to these days? Sure. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm a fan and um, definitely learn a lot from it. My name is Seti Hose and I, by day, I do motion graphics, and in my own time, yeah, I'm an artist and writer. My dad is an artist too, so we, we kind of, I come from like an artist family. These days, I'm doing, like, I do stand-up comedy at open mics. Um, I also sometimes write contributing editorials to publications, um, or, and I've also been a cartoonist for a while, and the topic of uh, cults has been uh, present in my work quite a bit lately. I think, if anything, because of the political climate, <laughs> whereas before I, I was kind of working my way up to maybe one thing since about maybe a decade ago, I kind of decided, like, I'm going to start telling this personal story of growing up in the Unification Church, like near the moons uh, until I was 13. And then for some time after that uh, in Seattle. But um, after this administration got elected in, I was like, OK, this needs to come out now because this is looking very familiar. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so this is why I speak out about it now. Um, I just, you know, a little emotional intelligence couldn't hurt anyone. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember, uh, hearing about, uh, I don't remember which George Bush it was, the father or the son who had been involved in, uh, some of the, the moon, uh, gatherings and, uh, had sort of given their, I guess, implicit, complicit you know, kind of support for this organization, the, the World Peace Organization. 
And, and so it's something now that we were upset about at the time. I remember that a president was, you know, lending sort of some validation or authenticity to what was happening in the organization by being on the dais with Reverend Moon. But now what you're saying is that we have a president who's reminding you of Reverend Moon and what, what was happening there, which is certainly um, certainly a change and one that I know is making a lot of people very concerned. So I guess before we continue, because I want to make sure to address this point, what are some of the similarities that you're seeing? Um, well, they're, I think they're pretty much directly tied into it. Um, the, the Moon Church, uh, they've given a lot of money to the right wing. Uh, they've always kind of been in bed with like uh, far right and right wing presidents, everyone from Nixon to Reagan to Bush, uh, they've all endorsed them in some form. I don't know, that's just kind of, I think because he just comes from a very religious background, Sun Young Moon, and um, that's his whole like narrative. And, uh, you know, that's who he can influence uh, in his, you know, well, uh, he died in 2012, but um, in what was his effort to, I guess, gain more power and um, because he believed he was the savior of mankind. So he just needed to expand his influence. And just like Scientology, you know, they went after like celebrities, like my dad actually met um, Michael Jackson's parents back in the 80s, trying to get him to go on tour for the church. And uh, I think they were talking about trying to get Elvis back in the day. So um, but yeah, there's a lot of similar patterns there. Yeah, okay, all right, which is always very alarming. Uh, that's not something you wanna have to say about someone who's in office, who's in charge of your country, uh, to whatever degree he's actually in charge, but still. Um, I think that there is something so powerful, of course, about the timing, but I'm curious also about your timing, that sometimes people will come out of an experience and then suddenly feel like it's time for them to start sharing their story. So was the impetus for that what was happening around you, or was there something inside of you that made you feel ready to tell your story? Um, well, at first, it, it, it was just... Uh... You know, I, I went to art school and I, uh, I, I just, it was great to be surrounded by a lot of uh, very ambitious artists who kind of, you know, found their thing, you know. And so I just kind of came to a point where I was like, well, what's my thing? What's my story? And, um, you know, there's that saying, write what you know. And uh, it just kind of hit me um, that, you know, I should, I should talk about this story that, you know, I think I'll, before uh, diving into this, uh, this was something that a lot of us who grew up in the church, I think we all figured that we would just grow up and then move away from it and enter the real world. Cause I think a good like 85 to 90% of second generation just don't stick around because they realize, you know, uh, after you go to college, you're like, Oh, this is, this doesn't make sense to like sustain this. Um, you know, I could be an independent person who thinks for myself and, Anyway, uh, so it was a little scary at first, but the more I, uh, the more I researched, the more I found that there's, there is research out there from people like you and you know, the cult research community like ICSA and whatnot, um, the more I felt secure and just speaking about it. So yeah, and just seeing how uh, well connected it is to like all the other patterns of, it's not just cults, it's just, it's psychology really. Right. So. I know there are a lot of people who haven't heard of the Unification Church and they haven't heard of Reverend Moon and they don't know that it's an organization that has continued in its own unique way, which I hope we get to talk about. <clears throat> but I remember being in New York during one of the times of the mass weddings at Madison Square Garden. 
uh, and thinking it's really amazing that here people could just be walking by Madison Square Garden thinking that if anything kind of usual is happening inside and something very unusual is happening inside and you would never quite know. Um, and so when people say, oh, I didn't know that kind of cults were still around, I think it's sometimes because things are happening behind closed doors. Of course, not every closed door, I'm not paranoid, <laughs> but, but it does happen kind of in the shadows. People, you don't know unless you know, unless you hear about it. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit before we hear your story, just about Reverend Moon and from what you know, who he was and sort of how he got started from whatever research you've done. And I know that might be kind of an unfair question because sometimes people say, you know, I'm not an expert on the group. I'm, ex I'm an expert on my experience, but just from what you know, what can you share with us? Uh, yeah, I actually did do uh, quite a bit of research on Sun and Moon. Uh, there was this one book called, um, sometimes I get the title wrong, but I believe it is uh, Change of Blood, Lineage, and Ritual Sex in the Unification Church. Wow. Yeah, by uh, Christine Nevelinen. And it basically talks about like the real origins of Sun Moon Moon and Unification Church, that he also grew up in like these fringe, um, you know, mostly Christian and uh, Confucian-influenced um, groups in, uh, in what is now North Korea. And they also involved like certain sexual rit rituals, like uh, it's called Pikarum. And uh, this is a way of like these fringe groups to induct people in. Uh, if you have sex with the leader, then you're, you're purified, you're cleansed, right? So this is like, you know, this pattern still exists today, like with Nexium, right? It's like similar ideology um, and really manipulation, but... Um, he so he tried to spread this like this fringe ideology, and um, it, it didn't gel with like Korean law. Like they were like, "Whoa, who's this guy who's going now on like college campuses and having sex with these younger women?" And um, you know he was in jail for it for a while, uh, and then he decided basically he just like grew in power and eventually moved to America in the fifties and wanted to spread his gospel. Uh, but I think you know <laughs> probably his advisor or someone were like. Uh, that sex stuff is not going to work in America. That's really not okay. Um, that doesn't fly there. So he went the total opposite way, uh, which is, you know, in line with a lot of conservatives of, you know, abstinence and, um, you know, wait until marriage. And, uh, but still he was having affairs behind closed doors. And um, the truth of that came out in the nineties, people started dropping off when they heard about that. Uh, but really all along, it was, you know, it was a sex cult. Um, if you really look back at it, um, you know, I didn't see any trace of this. Again, in, in his American branding, it was very taboo, like sex. We were taught that sex was like, you know, premarital sex was worse than uh, murder. Like literally we were taught this, like it's better to kill yourself than to lose your virginity outside of marriage. So yeah, but yeah, he, so he, so like I grew up seeing his family as this like multimillionaire family in Terrytown, New York. And well, I guess I'll, I'll save my story for later, but basically he's just a very charismatic speaker. He believed he was the second coming of Jesus. Um, he believed he was called like Jesus came to him when he was maybe 16, I believe. They have this like painting of him, like, you know, on the edge of a cliff and this like ray, sun ray coming down through the clouds on him. And Jesus is saying like, you know, take over my mission basically. And uh, this was what we grew up with. And that's what I grew up believing. So. And what do we know about uh, Mrs. Moon, about the wife? 
because I realized I haven't ever researched anything about her and what her origins are. I'm curious about that. Well, it turns out she actually grew up in one of those like fringe sex cults too. Oh, okay. So it was kind of like this groomed kind of relationship. Um, yeah, and she was, I believe, she was like a teenager when Sun Ring Moon was, uh, I think he was about 40 when he picked her to uh, get married to her. And um, yeah, now she kind of took over the mainstream church because uh, ever since Sun Ming Moon died in 2012, uh, it split off into splinter groups so that, that now rival each other. So this is why I feel a little bit more safe talking about it too, yeah. because if I ever like criticize one of them, the other ones are like, yeah, take that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah, I don't know. So I'm just like, all right, you guys, uh, yeah. I'm just going to talk about my experience and what I know and you guys do the rest, but. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're kind of getting, stepping into a spiritual food fight. Uh, right. And so, yeah, it is a little safer, right? Because they're not a unified force against their enemies. They're sort of seeing each other as the enemy, which is, is a really way to divide that power. I don't know if they realize that's what they're doing, but in yeah, any event. And just to clarify, like, I'm not trying to provoke conflict, really. I'm just saying, let's talk about the legitimate information. That's all I'm saying. Um, if you want to, like, I do, I'm not for or against well okay i'm against a lot of things but i'm not for like one side or the other i'm just you know i'm just saying what i know yeah right telling your story which you have every right to do and so let's do that that's a perfect segue so i know your story is a has a lot of parts to it and so one of the big challenges is sort of getting into bite-sized pieces for your story but your folks were involved and you were born into the group correct right Okay, and so you were born, was it in Terrytown or where were you? Um, my parents were in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, the church has had, I don't know if they sold it off, but uh, they had like a giant church there that I think used to belong to the Mormons. Uh, my dad was the pastor there. So at the time, yeah, I was born in D.C. And then uh, I think when I was about three, we moved to New York. So I grew up there until I was 13 near the moons. Okay. Okay, so from what you remember, give us sort of a day in the life. What was life like uh, growing up uh, from as much as, again, you can remember at certain ages, um, a typical day, let's say around age 9, 10, 11, something like that. What would you be doing? So I went to school in uh, the Irvington School District, and uh, it, it was a little, I mean, it was definitely, I was kind of a, little, a bit paranoid. Um, going to those schools because everyone knew about the moons who were in town. Uh, you know, the moons had an estate there and they were like, you know, the boogeymen, like, whoa, this is that rich cult. Oh my God. And they owned properties around town. So, um, you know, uh, one time, uh, one of my fellow students, you know, we got to go to public school, even though we were in this, you know, religious cult. Um, so it, it wasn't as restricted as, as other ones, but, yeah, one time this fellow student was like, hey, I think I saw you on that Mooney property. And I freaked out. I was like, that wasn't me. That wasn't me, you know, um, because my older brother and like his friends, like some of them would get beat up if they were found out to be a Mooney or they just lose all their friends. Um, and, you know, me and my friends would talk about, you know, oh, would you stand up to a teacher if they talked about the Moonies? And, you know, we it was this kind of like, um, I never felt safe going to school. Like I've always, I was always very uh, defensive. And I think to this day that affects me. I'm 
kind of a paranoid person deep down and this is why I can't like smoke weed and stuff like that because I'm like it it provokes those that paranoia and so um, you know even in socially and getting to know people or new spaces it takes me a little more time I think than the average person but I'm a very extroverted person so this is like one of the conflicts I have. Right yeah yeah but it's an interesting point though just to to expand on that for one moment I don't want you to lose your train of thought so you can remember where you were going with that, but I, but I wanted to say is that, uh, yes, there are some things that become part of our programming, where we are worried uh, if we feel like we have a secret or we have a life that is different from other people's around us, or a life that is going to be under consternation, where or people are going to be critical of it. We will often feel like there's a part of us that needs to stay hidden, and that the fear of being found out or, you know, yeah, I saw you on the property. No, you didn't. The fear of someone noticing that. What did you worry was going to happen that you wouldn't then be able to make friends or someone would see you a different way? What, what was the worry? I think it was, um, that's a good question. Uh, it, it, it was layered. It was like, first of all, I was afraid of just being singled out, um, of just kind of entering that space of like, other like this guy is other you know and but and also like this guy's brainwashed but also i mean we second generation were groomed to protect the moon family we were groomed to protect that community and what reinforces that is that um it really was like our family like it really they treated us nicely within those bounds like it was a community just like any other except we were like a little more bit more enmeshed and um, you know, it was more communal. I lived in communal housing for a while in Tarrytown, New York. So I always saw the world as like, you know, trying to get in and like attack us. And that was, you know, as a kid, you know, when I grew up, I was very angry about that. Just like, you know, my, my childhood wasn't my own. It was, I was supposed to be this like soldier, you know, for this church. And, you know, I know I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of other extreme religions that do the same thing, but I mean, that's, that's what it felt like. Yeah. That is a lot of pressure and uh, a lot of stress to put on someone at a young age. Yeah. Okay. All right. But thank you for explaining that uh, because you're right. It is multi-layered. It's not just feeling like you look different. And so someone might not, you know, want to be your friend or you might not get seated at the same lunch table. It was, um, it, it was uh, more intense than that. And also a sense of responsibility and protection and being a soldier for the cause. That is huge. Right. Yeah, and on that, actually, um, I have an excerpt from a, uh, we, we read, okay, so like one of the weekly rituals was that um, at, we wake up at 5 a.m. every Sunday, and uh, we would bow and like pray and recite our devotion to the leader, to Sun Myung Moon, a picture of him and his wife, uh, yeah, every Sunday at 5. Uh, so if I could just read an excerpt from that pledge. Yeah, yeah. So this was like one of, this is the part that I always think of when I think of the pledge that we had to recite from the card. Um, As a true son or daughter, I will follow our father's pattern and charge bravely forward into the enemy camp until I have judged them completely with the weapons with which he is, he, like God, been defeating the enemy Satan for me throughout the course of history. And at the end of reading those like five or six points, uh, we end it with, I will fight with my life. I will be responsible for accomplishing my duty and mission. This I pledge and swear. And we say that three times, this I pledge and swear. So um, (laughs) 
yeah, that's not really normal. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that that was our so like yeah. Every Saturday, we just knew that we would have to get up at five the next morning and recite this and then pray and then I don't know. Uh, yeah, that was that was my childhood. Yeah, I remember needing to do the, the pledge of allegiance. I mean, that was different. I still find that <laughs> also kind of weird and just a funny family story that I remember. Uh, my brother, when he was in elementary school, he came home his first day of elementary school having to do the Pledge of Allegiance for the first time. And he asked my parents, who is Richard Stan? And they said, we have no idea. And he said, well, we talk about him now. It seems every morning we need to talk about him. Um, uh, and it was, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for Richard Stan. And <laughs> why, why is this guy so famous? Anyway, yeah. but, but anyway, but to take it back to your story, the enemy camp, I mean, I wrote that down as you were talking about that. So, wow. So this, there is this intensity to that message and uh, us versus them. And you have to, you, you have to protect yourself. And so who, who is in the enemy camp and is everyone else or how do you get to the enemy camp? How was that defined? Well, I think, you know, we, there was a whole kind of militaristic theme in, uh, in the Unification Church of like, um, you know, we sang a song called Real Man. It was like Korean translated to English. So, you know, it's like sun go down, we go on, run and run, real man. Like, it, you know, it's a very patriarchal church. And um, I, I just think in general there, because it came from what is now North Korea, it just had a military kind of theme. Um, the enemy camp is just, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, I don't know, it, it could be anything, but really, I think what we talked about a lot in the church was the fallen world, which was, you know, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned in the Garden of Eden, um, in the Unification Church's version, they had uh, premarital sex, because I guess marriage existed then, and they didn't wait until then, <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, so they sinned, and so humanity was born of that sin, but through the Unification Church, um, if you're born into it, then you're born sinless. So uh, that was their way of keeping us, you know, marrying each other, those of us who were born into the church. Um, since then, they've laxed the rules a little or they made exceptions because they realized that it's not working and people are dropping off. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was basically the fallen world, quote unquote, meaning anyone outside of the Unification Church. Okay, so I'm curious. Uh, because you talk about from birth until age 13. So during that time, were there moments where you wondered if this was okay or if this was sort of quote unquote normal or not? Um, did you did you have those kind of moments of having the chance to even have those thoughts? You know, Sunyang Moon was a very wealthy man. Uh, he uh, is like, I think when he he brought in one of uh, the family that owned one of the top insurance companies in Korea. And I think that's where things got like mega crazy level. Um, so, you know, we actually had a lot of resources growing up and um, you know, my community was, it, it, it worked in that sense. And so I just always kind of figured, Oh, this is my culture. This, you know, and Sunday moon's the president. And, you know, I, I didn't think about it too much. Uh, well, the thing is there, there was a very hard transition of uh I grew up in Terrytown again near the moons uh, until I was 13 when on Sun Moon's order uh, he told 
families to move to their father's hometown uh, in order to spread the witnessing efforts. So we moved to Seattle, well, Bellevue, which is right outside Seattle. Mm -hmm. That's when we all started questioning it more. We had some distance from the New York headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I heard other families did this too. It's like, whoops, sometimes when you shouldn't have given that direction to like move away from where you could look over our shoulders because a lot of people just kind of just quietly distance themselves. So um, that's when I really started questioning. It was actually more in my teenage years uh, when I got some distance from it. But when I was in it, it was just, it was high intensity. It was like either in or out and you're just looking over your shoulder and, you know, but we also had nice moments of like hanging out with each other as a community. You would go to diners or go bowling or, you know, we just did everything together. Anything outside of that, we, um, you know, we just shielded off like, you know, like a cult would, you know, so that's, that was our lives. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't until you had that time away, so it's similar to other people, that you thought, okay, something might be off here, or maybe the world isn't such a horrible place, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm having some good experiences out here in the world. Did that happen, where you wondered why you've been given this message about the fallen world, that maybe it's not so fallen? Yeah, absolutely. In my teenage years, um, you know, it and where I was in, in Terrytown, New York and going to school in Irvington, it was very academic and like status competitive. Um, I know uh, <laughs> Lady Gaga was quoting as saying something like, um, I, you know, I'm from New York, but like, uh, I hope no one, but everyone thinks I'm from Westchester. Like, I hope no one thinks that because Westchester is very kind of like high society, like very status competitive. So, that, you know, whereas I had this like, church community that was accepting for me being church and all godly and all the spiritual things outside of that it it was almost like confirmation bias it was like oh people are really you know they do look down on you and they they don't accept you for you are so but when I moved outside of that and then I went to school in New York City later uh fearing uh, well um for college fearing that I would uh come across that attitude again you know I talked to New Yorkers and like oh that's just Westchester (laughs) I'm sorry you grew up there so it's like double whammy. Yeah. Um, no. So in Seattle and in the Northwest, um, I think in the West Coast in general, like people are are more nice to the approach and they try to be more open minded. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, I think there's pros and cons to both sides. You know, this is always what I talk about when I'm drinking with friends. Uh, people were just, yeah, they were they were kind of more nice. It's it pretty international. There's a lot of uh, the Asian community in, uh, in the West Coast. And uh, so you know, I got to know other Asians outside of just the church and um, just, yeah, people in general. Um, and I was like, yeah, in my teen years, I was like, why is there this hard split? Like, why do I give all of who I am to this one special group? Like, that's not fair. Um, and yeah, definitely just getting to know people in the real world is really, it's therapeutic and it's eye-opening. So Right. So I wanted to be able to say something uh, and then go back to ask also about your parents and your family, because I realized I, I skipped over all of that. And then to go back to the teenage years. So the timeline's getting a little kind of uh, backward, but that's okay. So everyone try to keep track. Um, I think, first of all, when you were talking about how Reverend Moon said, okay, go to the the land of your father or the place where he's from. And that that caused people to kind of splinter off and be exposed to the world and, and maybe want to be a part of it again or want to be a part of it for the first time. It it doesn't surprise me, knowing just what I know about him, that he would have assumed that 
the programming would have held tight uh, no matter where people were. That if this is the answer and he's the Messiah, then no one would doubt it. And you'd be able to hold on to that message wherever you were. It's probably very surprising to him that he was losing numbers if he was aware of it. Uh, but it comes with that kind of narcissistic piece. You know, I am perfect. This is perfect. Why would you ever doubt it? Um, okay, so then I'm curious then about your parents and also if you have siblings who were raised in it, but what, I guess, what was the appeal for your parents? Why did they get involved? Um, well, this is always like a sensitive question with them because they have their reasons. And I, I'm aware of like, I'm not them. I can't, you know, I, I didn't choose to be in this church. They did for their reasons. And right. Right. Um, I understand that it's not fair to like speak for them while they're not here. But, uh, you know, with regard to that, what, what I think um, from actually interviewing them, because when I decided to get more investigative about this church and everything in my life, um, I, I just, I formally interviewed them. And my mom grew up uh, on like, uh, kind of on a farm in Shizuoka uh, Prefecture in uh, Japan, which is near Mount Fuji. It's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, so she, she grew up kind of in a working class family, just uh, on the farm. And she was the one who moved away from her family and went to school in the big city and was like, you know, I'm going to make something of myself and, you know, I'm going to, you know, climb the ladder, I guess. And uh, she also had uh, her, her father seemed to be somewhat of an intimidating presence. And I don't think he, she had a very emotionally available father. Um, I think part of that is Japanese culture, you know, the traditional father works and, and the, the mom does everything at home. Um, uh, but also just, you know, unique to her family. So I think that kind of setup of her, her drive to like, you know, find this, um, something and find God too. Uh, she, yeah. And then she ran into a, a church recruiter on her uh, college campus and mm -hmm. you know, she was just like, this is the answer. So there was that. And, um, for my dad, he, he grew up, uh, you know, he was always a well-meaning person. Um, I think, my dad is, uh, he's, he's a very kind natured person, I think sometimes to a fault because he's been taken advantage of a few times, unfortunately. But um, he, um, you know, he's an artist. He was a seeker. He was a hippie. He moved to San Francisco from Seattle. Um, but he was also, what I learned from interviewing him, uh, he was a foster child who was passed around a lot uh, from in his formative years, from the time he was born until he was nine. And it's, it's interesting to hear him talk about it now. Like, he's just like, yeah, that's just how I was then. And I'm like, that's serious. Like, that's uh, something that's not normal. Like, so um, anyway, I, I kind of put together that maybe that's why he joined this church because um, he was approached in San Francisco and, uh, you know, I think he just got love bombed, you know, yeah, just got showered with love and he never had that kind of stability, I think, before. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think when some people join the church, like they have nothing better to compare it to, uh, not, not to subjectively say that their lives were trash before, but right, right. I think they were both looking for something, you know, some kind of stability, some kind of identity, uh, empowerment. And, um, yeah. you know, so that's, that's kind of how I see their story. You know, of course, they also had, they had good intentions. They wanted to find spirituality. It was like, the 60s when you know people were were actively seeking a guru like mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. right. um put all those together and you know 
you got who they are today. So right, and but I like the way you said it that it is true that you can't speak for other people, and, and I think that's very respectful and kind and true. And, and at the same time, you can have some insights, especially after talking to them, but that it is not to paint at all a negative picture, but just to understand what the draw was and and that what is um, something that a lot of people get drawn towards, which is just the promises of a lot of things, of, of relief, of security and community, mm-hmm. family, consistency, especially I'm thinking for your father. Uh, and so there, yeah, there are many reasons that it's an appealing picture. And so, yeah, people do get involved with, with good intentions and also intentions to heal and to fill a space, um, for something that they felt was empty and they hadn't been able to fill or fulfill before. Those are, there are a lot of very valid reasons. Yeah. And I think you and I have spoken about before how there's like, there's no criteria for joining a cult or there's no one type of person. It's, it could be anyone. And, you know, I think that's what most researchers have found as well to say. Um, they're influencing factors, but yeah, um, you can't really say this plus this equals this. So. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and um, I'm curious also, are there other family members who were involved or, was, or mom, dad, and you? Uh, I have four siblings. Uh, so, and, uh, I have, <laughs> this, this could be its own story, but there was another sibling who was adopted to another church family. And that was pretty common in, uh, in the church. Oh. Uh, it's interesting. I, I remember I was looking for apartments when I first moved to San Francisco and I talked to this one person who had an apartment and she was like, oh, she's like, oh, I grew up in a cult too. And it's like, whoa, really? And I told her about this person in my family who was adopted to another family. And she was like, Yep, that's what cults do. It's like because you're all one big family, and so it's easy to like pass around kids or whatever. Mm. You know, not to minimize the intentions of you know the the transaction. I guess you call. I don't know. (laughs) Word choice. Um, But uh, but yeah, um, you know, I saw that as as part of it. And uh, anyway, but yeah, so I come from a pretty big family, and it's also a spectrum of. You know, I think my oldest brother, he was raising it the most. He used to hang out with the moon kids and, you know, uh, until they started bullying their friends, which is what they did. They would just, they, they were just toys to them pretty much. Like these kids were just all in this megalomaniacal family. They would dunk their heads underwater until they almost, you know, suffocated. And they'd be like, bow down to me now, you know, just like they were just on another planet and so my brother just stopped hanging out with them you know it didn't take long um so us youngers never hung out with them but yeah my youngest brother is kind of he's the most in touch with the real world he gives us financial advice he (laughs) married as a kid and nice like house and everything whereas i think my older brother is is probably dealing with a little more trauma from you know just he was um he was in college by the time we left New York and my youngest brother was, I think nine. So, um, and I was like the next one up for my younger brother, you know, excluding that one who was uh, adopted to another family. Mm-hmm. But, so I'm, I'm also kind of in the middle, uh, but you know, I see a good therapist. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Lots of boys, lots of boys in your family. Um, okay. All right. So to go back for a second, when you were talking about um, Reverend Moon's kids, so yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of stories of um, the bullying, the intimidation, fear tactics, and this kind of overarching feeling of entitlement. 
and um, that's not it's, it's not a good thing. It's sort of a recipe for disaster, you know. And uh, and that also then what happens within usually cultic groups is that there is no system of checks and balances, so that there isn't a protection inside to right that you can't go to somebody to say someone did this to me and that they'll support you, especially if it's Reverend Moon's child. Um, so did you or did your brother feel like you were just at people's mercy, especially the Reverend Moon's children's mercy? Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, there's that book uh, that came out by Nansa Kong uh, called um, In the Shadow of the Moons. Yeah, it was in like 60 Minutes and um, about Hyojin Moon, who, uh, or Steve Moon in his American name, who was, yeah, I remember seeing him around town or if we were hanging out on a church property and he showed up, showed up, everyone's like, you know, um, like deer in headlights. Uh, he was pretty unhinged. He, you know, he had a Coke problem. He kept a gun under his bed. He um, would, you know, beat his wife even while she was pregnant. And like, he, he was scary. He um, just, you know, but at the same time, I, 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 you know, I, I don't put it all on him. I'm like, if I grew up in that family, I'd probably be really like messed up. Uh, so I get it, but it doesn't mean I want to try to reach out to the guy or anything. Anyway, he uh, unfortunately passed away like some years ago, but um, yeah, no, when we were hanging out on uh, the church property, the property we went to Sunday school at uh, called Belvedere in Terrytown. Um, you know, sometimes we just hang out after church because we would just be hanging out with our friends and playing soccer or whatnot. And if Hyojin or Hyunjin, uh, who is uh, close to his age as well, you know, if they were having a bad day or something, they would just like barge into the room we were hanging out in and we'd all stand up straight, like military style and like bow to him. And he'd be like, you know, you can sit down. And then he would just go on about, um, you know, it was never anything personal. It was always, they had to wrap up their rants in like some kind of spiritual language. They're like, cause you know, screw Satan and do or if someone got their heart broken or something, he just, they'd be great women or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. it, and I think, and sometimes they got physical. And so whenever they walked in, I think the first thought in all of our minds was, was like, is it going to hit someone this time? Like, who's it going to be? Um, so it, it was just this really, you know, and in, in therapy, like I realized that, um, you know, what I thought I was going to get coming out of therapy was like my relationship to my family and how they affect me and stuff. But I realized that the moons was almost like an extension of my family because they were our providers. They were our, you know, they gave us morality. They were our protectors and, you know, abusive protectors. But um, so I had to take that into account as like, I have a larger abusive family in this situation. Wow. That was pretty enlightening, but uh but yeah, so there were a few of those moments or like, you know, we'd hear from our friends like, oh, did you hear that, you know, Hyunjin beat up Sebastian for saying this or like, you know, five or six kids who were just like beat up for their opinion or something like that. Um, it didn't happen too often, but there was that looming presence. Otherwise, it was just going to Belvedere to hear really long speeches that, again, I heard that was a cult pattern where cult leaders and you know, other leaders in the group will speak for hours and hours. And I'm like, oh, thank God. That's like something that's really wrong. <laughs> and it's like, I can hate it openly because <laughs> yes. I don't remember much. But anyway, um, <laughs> this, that was yeah. just awful. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just as a kid, I'm like, I sh you grow up and you're like, I shouldn't be waking up at like six in the morning and coming and listening to this like guy 
talk about how great the world is in his mind and how everyone's doing it wrong. <laughs> like, anyway. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. So sometimes it is because it it puts people in the trance. It, there's this hypnotic element. I do think just uh, in in a very kind of basic way, I think these people just love to hear the sound of their own voice. Yeah. Totally. Right? It's just narcissism, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they think that what they're saying is so wise, and it just keeps pouring out of them and they they don't read their audience because they don't care about their audience and so if you're hungry you're tired you're whatever it doesn't matter they're not done uh and so i even though i'm sure there are a lot of people who tune out i mean i've talked to a lot of people who talk about um mm-hmm. having gone to services that were really really long um and uh i mean i remember growing up i wasn't raised in a cult, but i remember going to a synagogue every once in a while and the services were too long for a child. And I remember figuring out a way to keep my mind occupied. Uh, and I would count things and I would just buy like the ceiling tiles or whatever else I could find and notice the different colors in the room. And um, right. Because you have so awful. to, right. You have to keep your brain occupied uh, or right. you dissociate, although it's kind of its own dissociation. So I'm curious, though, what you of what you remember of the things that he talked about during these interminably long sermons. What what were some of the ways that he talked either about himself or about the world? What do you recall? Um, he it, it was very like uh, Confucian influence. Like he would draw these like bubble charts of like you know man arrow woman and then arrow God and then. Well, there was something called the four position foundation, which got a lot of like sex related humor jokes after we all left the church. But um, So it was like, it was this like a uh, chart of four dots of like, you know, gods or, or four circles, gods the circle on top and then man, woman are the circles to the left and right. And then child is like the circle on the bottom. And there's all these arrows between them, like very just basic stuff that he tried to make look like this really revelatory scientific, like breakthrough, but you know, uh, man, it's just like life on crack, basically. <laughs> so like, uh-huh. yeah, so it was that or sometimes he would like throw in some extreme stuff. Like he, he I remember one lecture, um, you know, he, he actually grew up kind of poor and he, he worked his way up to being rich or whatever. So he does come from that more kind of like street talk kind of, you know, uh, thing, though, so, our language. So he was like, you know, the thing about God is uh you know, when you, when you're going to the bathroom and you go number two, like, yeah, you don't notice the smell from your own number two, uh, because it's just one with you. But if you go in after someone else goes, then you do notice the smell. So like, that's like God, like he's one with you. So you don't realize he's there, but like you feel it in other people or something like that. Like he liked to throw in those like shocking statements and stuff. And I think those actually worked because like, I think people were like, whoa, this guy's not afraid to get like a little dirty, you know, like, and that was part of his charisma. And it made, you know, I think it would, it kind of, uh, it, it was interesting. And, and that's, that's kind of what people do in art. And that's what people do in writing too. You, you gotta like, um, ruffle people's feathers up a little bit you know, in order to like, get them to pay attention or to, to make it more interesting. Right. So he threw in some of that here and there. Um, okay. Yeah. So what's, what is interesting about that story, first of all, is that uh, it doesn't feel very spiritual <laughs> you know, as you're listening to it, right? 
because it's I think it is trying to be kind of relatable. Yeah. Um, and kind of for the everyman, so to speak. But also it it might not be true and it might not make sense, but it seems like a really interesting point. And that can also be true of art where you you can evaluate it and it's interesting, but do you feel like it's good and what does it mean to be good? But and that right. makes sense. But I think from what I can see, I think Wherever Moon was um, trying to show the truth. So there's sort of the right way to look at things and the wrong way to look at things. And from that story, if I were in it, I can imagine thinking, okay, what message am I supposed to glean from this? But if I were just a fly in the wall, I'd say, and like what, mm-hmm. how does that help me in the world to know this? And how does that further my spirituality? You know, and probably now with some distance, you're looking at some of the things that you were taught and wondering what was the point? Well, I realized that it was in the marketing sphere of the American Christian. And it's like, you know, uh, the original name of the church is the Holy Spirit Association for World uh, Christian for the Unification of World Christianity, HSA UWC. So it's like he's trying to, like, break the rules within a Christian bubble. And everyone outside of that is just evil and fallen. And anyone liberal or, like, with a voice of criticism in the news or comedians, like, um, these were things that I actively feared growing up. I was like, if they, if the news or a comedian said Mooney, I was, I would like feel my stomach drop. Like, oh no, like they're coming after us, you know? So um, this was, you know, this is the world that Sun and Moon lives in. And this is the kind of like now becoming fringe, like intensity that I'm seeing uh, in the far right Republican, you know, base. And I, you know, I don't, like to use labels and stuff like that because I know there are some people on the right who are more like right of center and stuff, you know. But um, just basically the the language of uh, you know making these announcements charismatically without backing it up with research is scary. It's the definition of fascism and propaganda. One more thing before you go. Teddy talked today about the idea of the outside world being seen as the fallen world, as a place that was evil and where there was sin and a place to be avoided at all costs. And that as part of that, people were taught, as he was, to stay within a safer environment and also to defend it. More importantly, I think, is that he was taught to protect the group from the enemy camp. And the enemy camp was, well, everybody not in the group, the rest of the world, basically. And that's a big place. And that's a lot of people. And that conjures up an image, especially for a child, of the world as kind of a band of marauding villagers with torches and pitchforks coming to attack this small group of people. Teddy talked about being groomed to protect the Moon family. A lot of people in controlled situations are taught to defend it and protect it in the leadership. And then the group has its own kind of human barricades, its own police force, so to speak. Not necessarily with guns, although we will talk about that during my next conversation with Teddy next week. But with a great sense of purpose and defensiveness, uh, kind of as though It's a matter of life or death. And I've seen on the news this kind of anger and fear and intensity in the eyes of small children. I'm sure you've seen it too. 
who are learning to chant and shout a political message against another people and are groomed to be willing to fight or sometimes even die for the cause, it's disturbing to watch. The group, the leader, and the message need to be preserved. That's the message you get, and at any cost. It also happens in controlling relationships where it's the obligation of the one being controlled to defend the one controlling them to the public eye, to the police, to their families, anyone. Truth is a lot of people do truly believe they're doing the right thing by defending their organization or their leader, whether it's their spiritual leader or political leader or their partner. And sometimes they feel proud and even honored that they were given this responsibility to safeguard the only right way or safeguard the organization that needs to be protected from the rest of the world as though the rest of the world is planning to take it down and destroy it, which is actually rarely the world's focus and is rarely the case. There is an us versus them mentality that comes up a lot in cults and comes up a lot in controlling relationships and even comes up a lot when you're dealing with people who are prone towards anxiety and paranoia. They feel that the world somehow is against them. So they have to try to convince those in their lives that there is an actual and active threat in the hope that it emboldens the people within their group or their lives to believe them and then feel the need to be a part of being their defensive shield. What happens when you're taught that you need to defend something or someone like this, but you don't have an opportunity to take a step away and wonder if it or they are worthy of defending? And you don't have a chance to think that maybe it is that you are getting swept up into somebody else's paranoia and there is no imminent danger and you're potentially also being used to keep something going that shouldn't be kept going and that might not be good or healthy for the people involved. But we all like what feels like an important task and we like being able to feel that we are fighting for the underdog or something or someone who holds the key to life or the truth. And we like feeling powerful, especially at a young age. There's an intoxication that comes with feeling like you are a soldier for the cause, but you often are not given the freedom or even the permission to think about the cause and if it is worth defending. Or to see if the leader has given you a good life and has made good on his or her promises so far or not. And often you, the one given the task and pressure of protecting them, are the one who needs to be protected from them, but you can't see it at the time. So sometimes in retrospect, the people who have left their controllers within a relationship or a cult come to see that they were groomed to protect a perpetrator. I have a background in special education and rem remember running support groups for the siblings of kids with special needs a few years in a row. And the siblings, while often feeling that there wasn't enough time left for them and attention paid to their needs, they still often felt deeply protective towards their sibling with special needs who was being stared at or made fun of. And in that situation, it's clear what is happening that the outside world through their stares or their comments or their laughter felt like something scary and something that you do need to protect your loved one from. But protecting your controller or protecting your cult leader is like protecting the head of the mafia 
Is that how your good and honorable effort should be used? Or is that just how your devotion is tested and how you unknowingly are being used to keep something going that harms others? Or is just feeding a leader's already grandiose sense of self-importance? When my father was in graduate school, he and a few roommates, as the story goes, decided to rescue a monkey that was kept in the science building on campus. And they named it Uncle Benny. I have no idea why, except the monkey may have unfortunately looked like one of their relatives. Maybe it was more unfortunate for Uncle Benny. They had no idea how to take care of a monkey, though, and they did not predict that he would shred their curtains and all their furniture back when dormitories actually had curtains and nice furniture. But they were spurred on by this notion that there was something that was defenseless and helpless and needed rescuing. But a cult leader, a controller, an abuser is not helpless or defenseless. They don't need your protection. They want it. They demand it. But they don't need it. And most importantly, don't deserve it. But if they can corral your mind into the idea that forces are working against them and working against all of you, then you can feel honorable protecting them and it will feel like a necessary task. But I think that that task should be based on merit. I once saw a sign that said that if you want to truly honor a soldier, be the kind of person worth fighting for. So basically, make their sacrifice for you worth it. It's the same here. When Reverend Moon and the Moon family, well, when they were doing all the things that they were doing behind the scenes, you can see that they weren't necessarily worth fighting for. Were they worthy of your protection and devotion and sacrifice? Probably not. Did they act in an honest and honorable way to deserve your protection? And most importantly, I think, if you were in danger, would they run to defend you and protect you? I truly doubt it. I think those are important questions to ask, but they're hard ones to ask yourself because if the answer is no, that they are not necessarily worth defending and they have not acted in honorable ways to deserve your protection, nor would they defend and protect you from danger and keep you away from harm, then you're faced with looking at a situation in a very honest and painful way. But sometimes having that awareness helps to start you on a new path where you realize that you matter as much as they do. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.